Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 13 through 17. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives, and David would not drink it? Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. This is the word of God. Before we start uh, this morning, I, I'm really um, just broken and, <clears throat> and moved by uh, the events that have taken place in the past week. And uh, if you just pray with me briefly, let's just lift up our country, uh, whether it's silently or, or together as, uh, you know, whichever way that you're used to praying. It is a, it is a crazy time in our country. And uh, there are, um, we, we live in a country that, that, that uh, politicizes um, things that really shouldn't have to be politicized, such as injustice and oppression, right? Um, if you just pray with me uh, before we start um, and pray silently with me, I would be grateful. Will you do that with me? Let's pray. Father, we don't stand here uh, on any political platform uh, Jesus was neither a Republican or a Democrat. We come here uh, because we're broken people. And Lord, education does not solve this problem. Uh, Certainly not. Science will not solve this problem. Our genetics, for that matter, this is not a problem of genetics. Lord, we are are, uh, coming before you because uh, we have a sin problem that resides so deep at the core and goes unaddressed day by day, moment by moment. And we are turning as a people uh, to injustice and oppression as a means of demonstrating superiority over one another. And Father, this country, Lord, it is, it is a broken country. It is a fragment, fragmented society. And the events that have taken place in Charlottesville is a small picture, but a great picture of, of the way sins go unaddressed, even at the top. Lord, we lift up our leaders that you would wake them up. Lord, as Dr. Martin Luther King says, that uh, we, when we turn a blind eye to these injustices, we are just as guilty of committing them. And so, Father, I pray that voices would speak up, powerful voices would rise and speak up, Uh, for the weak, for the oppressed. And Father, I pray that we who have here in this congregation, that we would grow a conscious voice for those who are weaker. Because who is Jesus but one who is the high king, who came down and tabernacled with his people, who were weak and oppressed by sin to set them free at his cost. Father, will you do the same for your people here? Lord, in this city also divided along racial lines, uh, divided along poverty lines. Father, will you teach us, come together as a whole church in Philadelphia 
to give and to heal and to help uh, and to turn away from the fighting, but speak out and fight against oppression, to fight against these injustices, to fight against racial tensions, to fight against bigotry, to fight against that type of prideful injustice that the city can heal properly uh, by, Lord, turning to you, if anything, to turn to you and in confession and acknowledgement of the greater king who has poured out himself for his people. Thank you, Father, for your grace and for your people, the city within a city that can live in an alternate way, that black and yellow and white uh, can reside together and, and live graciously towards one another, acknowledging distinctives, acknowledging differences in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You know, for the past uh, few months, we've been looking at uh, the Bible, uh, really a survey of the Bible from the beginning all the way on, and we're going to go all the way through looking at the major themes in the Bible because we grew up reading these passages and learning about these passages and not really getting these passages growing up. We were taught wrong a lot of times. Not all the time, but a lot of times we were taught wrong. And so this, this series is designed to teach us to relearn some of these passages. Some of them are confusing. Some of them we thought we understood. We're going to relearn them. And uh, for the past several weeks, we've been looking at the life of David. And we saw in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Spirit of God, as, God anoint, as Samuel anointed David because God has chosen him to be king, the Spirit of God rushed into David's life. It gave him boldness. It gave him courage. In chapter 17, one chapter later, he defeats Goliath. David would be king. And that takes us to the background of this passage. When King Saul became, became aware that David would be anointed as the next king, rage and jealousy overtook him corroded his soul, and he began openly tr to try to kill David, and as a result, David had to flee in the wilderness. He had to run away. He was hiding out in caves, and there, around 400 men at one point had gathered around David, and uh, th they became very close, hiding, preparing, strategizing in these caves together. They became very close. They became, there were a band of soldiers that became like brothers of David. Saul, King Saul eventually died. And these men who had gathered around David, they became uh, his, his best friends. They became his guardians. They really served in his palace. They saved his life. They saved his life. They were his most loyal band of friends. They were military elite. They were skilled, strategic, and calculated. They were great leaders, but David loved them as family. They were his family. They were his family when he was away from family. They knew each other very well. They loved their king. They loved David. They didn't love him for what he could give them. He had nothing at the time. They loved him in the caves, in the darkness. And uh, David called, him, uh, called them his mighty men. Now the author, at the end of David's life, this passage is really towards the end of his life, um, at the end of his life, goes back and starts to recount this particular experience, this particular narrative in, the Bible, in, the, in, in his life. It wasn't when David was running away from Saul. David hid in caves often. It wasn't when he was running away from Saul. But he goes back to a time very early 
after Saul passes away, after he dies, he goes back to a time in an early period in David's reign as king. Now, we learned in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when David defeated Goliath that the Philistines were bitter enemies of the Israelites. And at this time, very early in David's career as king, they decided to invade Israel. And the reason why they did that was because David is weak. He's inexperienced. He's new. And so they wanted to test this new king. They wanted to test his valor, test his courage. When he was weak, when he was least experienced, when he was vulnerable and open, it was a very, very dark time for David. And in verses 13 to 14, we read that the Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim, just a few miles southwest of Jerusalem, southwest of Jerusalem. And they had taken over Bethlehem, which was David's hometown. And David, as a result, he had to flee. He had to run away. And so he sets up his stronghold, his small kind of temporary headquarters in a cave. And uh, Israel's very weak. The throne, there is no throne. The capital has been overturned. David's hometown taken over. And David, who is king, is hiding out in a cave, and it's during the harvest. It was harvest time, and that's disastrous for a country. Why? Because the Philistines came in, and if they destroyed or plundered the harvest, this country, David's country, would have a shortage of food. The country would fall into economic depression during a time of war. Terrible times. It was a time of extreme darkness for David. The Philistines are in the heart of Israel. Israel's economic future is at stake, is at risk. They're going to starve them out. And while David's in a cave, in verse 15, he says, oh, if someone would just get me a drink of water from oh, the well near the gate of my hometown, that, that well that's at the gate of Bethlehem, if someone would just get me a drink of water from there, He's reminiscing. He's nostalgic. He's thinking about this. And, uh, and now, I want to say to you, David wasn't thirsty. Because when he gets the water, what does he do? He pours it out. And David's not a fool. Because there's no way he would have set up a headquarters, uh, his own camp, where he would strategize with his team, with the elite. He would not set it up in a cave that had no spring nearby. There, there had to have been a spring nearby. So why was he longing for this water? He wasn't longing for water. He was longing for home. He was homesick. He says, oh, someone would get me a drink. Water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, near my home. He wasn't longing for physical water. Now, the water in Bethlehem was considered sweet. That represents the favor of God, the sweetness of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God. David, he was longing for the promise of God. Because he was supposed to be a king, and yet he's in a cave. Lots of promises. He was called to be the deliverer, the redeemer, the ruler, the king, the one who was going to be on the throne. God was supposed to be present in his life, and yet here he's in darkness, he's in a cave, he's in the cold, he's got nothing, and he's weak and he's vulnerable. There's no throne. He doesn't even have a home. And so what he's really saying when he says, oh, someone will get me a drink from my hometown, what he's really saying is, am I ever getting home? Will I ever get there? You know where there is, right? We all have a there. He says, am I ever going to get there? 
Am I ever going to be king? God promised something. Samuel anointed me with the promise of God. And yet, here I am. Will we ever win? How are we going to beat the Philistines? They've taken over the capital. They've taken over my home. In other words, is God really still with me? Because I'm suffering. How do I know? He says, oh, he's sighing. I'm longing for a time of peace. Very applicable today, right? I'm longing for a time when peace will be restored, when justice will be restored, when rest will be restored. You know what happens? A few of the men nearby, the mightiest of the mighty men nearby, they overhear. And of the 30 chief men, three of them were the mightiest. And if you read chapter 23, it details their valor and their honor and their heroism and their skill, crazy skill. And they hear their king's longing. They hear his sigh and they see him suffering in the cave. And they trust him and they love him and they know him. And so in verse 16, So the three mighty men, they broke through the Philistine lines. They drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and they carried it back to David. Notice, the author gets very, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you see really the longest narrative, the longest biography, the longest history of a single human life in all of ancient literature, not just in the Bible, but all of ancient literature, First and Second Samuel chronicles the longest narrative of a single human life. Really tells you what makes or breaks a human life here, right? And, uh, and here, though, you don't see any details. All through those two books, lots of details. When you see David countering Goliath, Lots of details. But here, very little detail. And uh, there's a, in fact, there's a lack of detail. You kind of have to put the pieces together. What does it tell you? The Bible never romanticizes war. The Bible never romanticizes blood. Yes, there's war. Yes, there's blood. And without getting into the details, it's because God is a just God. And, and he wants to, he's going to defeat justice. He's a king of justice. So he's going to defeat oppression. He's going to defeat uh, uh, injustice. The, but the Bible never romanticizes blood. And even though it's not just news, it's not just hype on the other hand. This is from God. And God never romanticizes war and blood. But you have to think about what happened. You have to put the pieces together. In verse 16, it says, They broke through the Philistine garrison. Now, the Philistine garrison, what a garrison is, it's kind of like an early warning system. It's a group of about 20 soldiers encamped in a particular area because when they see an onslaught coming, the garrison is the early warning system for the rest of the army, the rest of the camp. And so these three men cut their way through this garrison of 20 men. And the Bethlehem gate that David was referring to is up on a hill. And so these three men have to fight through uphill. It's literally an uphill battle at a disadvantage, 20 to 3, broke through the lines, gets to the well. Now, you, once, you get, once you break through the lines, the Philistine garrison, their intent is to tell the rest of the army that, that they have been breached. They're going to go to the headquarters. 
So here you have the army coming. You have the 20 men in the garrison. And you have three men who have fought an uphill battle. They have to get the water. You have to think about this, right? To get water, two of the men have to fight off the rest of the army while one of them is filling up the canteen, right? Filling up the water. And then, now you have the army. They have to fight the army through to get home. It's a tremendous feat, right? Now, the Philistines are asking, there are only three of them? What the heck were they after? Were they after gold? No. Were they trying to free prisoners? No. Were they angry? Were they going for vengeance? No. What were they after? Water. They were after water. Now, there's plenty of water in the area. There were other wells that they could have gone to. There were other springs that they could have gone to. But they went to that particular well, the well that is David's home. They bring it back to David, and David is so moved. He's so filled with joy. What does he do? He refuses to drink it. In fact, what he does is he, instead he pours out the water before the Lord. Verse 17, the men, these men, they stare death in the face. They bring back the water. They hand it to the king. The king looks at them. He pours out the water, and the water is gone. This is the near, the near east. Very, very hot climate. The water literally just vaporizes. Were the men indignant? No. In fact, there is no way they would have been indignant. They would have been honored by this act. It was an act of worship because he poured it out before the Lord. This is known as a drink offering, which turned into a thank offering, a thanksgiving offering. It was an act of worship because David is saying, I realize that because these men have sacrificed and they have risked their lives, now I know that God is with me. And so this drink offering has turned into a thank offering, a thanksgiving offering. God had used these three men to encourage David because uh, the men knew that if three men could break through the enemy lines, break through the Philistine garrison, break through the Philistine army, then David's army, David's nation can win. And the Philistines knew that if three men can break through their garrison and break through their army, they were a very advanced war culture. The Philistines were a very advanced culture in war. But if these three men can break through their garrison and break through their camp, then David's army could defeat their entire army. This was probably the turning point of the war. These three men were not trying to show how strong they were. They were not trying to show how great they were. They were not being impulsive. They were very, very calculated, strategic, skilled leaders. They were the chief of the men. They were the chief of the chief of the men. They were not crazy. They were calculated. They trusted, they knew, and they wanted to show David what they knew. That one, God is with them. Total devotion to their king. Number two, victory comes through suffering, not despite suffering. And number three, David realized this, and it encouraged them and honored him. What do you learn from it? What do we learn from this? We learn a few things. Just a few. We're going to go right into application today, right, very quickly. One, it's all about looking. One, look to your blessings as a gift. Look to your victories, any victory, every moment of victory, every blessing as a gift. When David poured out this water before the Lord, what he's saying is, I didn't deserve this. I didn't earn this. It's only by God's sheer grace that these men broke through these lines. Victory and the battle is the Lord's. 
You men, my friends, saw my weakness, and it shaped you. It convicted you. It saw, you saw what needed to be done. What does that mean? You never trust your skills. Never trust your prowess. Never trust your strengths alone. That's really been the theme of the last several weeks. If you've been here the last several weeks, chapter 15, uh, Saul, he has skill. He is smart. He's taller than everyone else. He looks like a leader, and yet God rejects him because his desires and his wisdom, he followed them over God's desires and God's wisdom. His ambitions were more important to him, and so he was rejected. In chapter 16, David wasn't even brought to the table to be presented as king. And so Samuel had to ask again, is this all you've got to Jesse? Jesse had eight sons. He brought seven of them to the table. God rejected and turned away all seven. They were more skilled. They looked more like leaders. God chose David, the eighth person. Don't trust your prowess. prowess. Don't trust your skills. Don't trust your leadership qualities. Don't trust your, your abilities. Chapter 17, David defeats Goliath. Goliath heavily armored, heavily skilled. David couldn't even bear the armor, wasn't skilled, not in that way, defeats Goliath. So the last several weeks really follows this type of motif. You never trust your prowess. You never just rely on your strengths alone. You never just rely on your abilities alone, your talent alone, your pedigree alone. Don't ever say, we did that. We accomplished that. What you do is you pour it out before the Lord because it's a gift. If you want a litmus test for how you know, no matter how humble you are on the outside, how you know you act as if you earned it, it's your entitlement. When you're entitled, what you're saying is, I'm angry and I'm frustrated because I don't have something I deserve. Another way, another litmus test is you're grumbling, complaining. Because when you're complaining, what you're saying is, I had a plan, God had a plan, I deserve my plan. And when I don't get it my way, what happens? You get angry, you get frustrated. We get anxious when we believe that God is not going to answer our prayers. We take matters into our own hands. We get angry when we believe that God has failed to answer our prayers. Right? That's what happens. Uh, what's one way you know that you're responding to sheer grace, to the grace of God? You give. Everyone here, I'm going to tell you, uh, my seminary professor, when I was uh, a man I deeply respect, his name is uh, Bill Crispin, uh, one of the things he said to me, he was teaching this class, and he stopped in the middle of the class, and uh, he pointed me out in the middle of class. He says, you know, you run a camp. At the time, there was no church. I was not a pastor. I was just studying. He says, you run a camp for children, right? I said, yeah. He said, how many weeks is that camp? I said, two, got to take about two and a half weeks. He says, how many weeks do you take off for that camp? I said, one, one and a half weeks tops. Why? Well, because I only, you know, I, I work in the, I'm bivocational. I work uh, in a company. I only had two weeks of vacation at the time. He says, uh, what I want you to do tomorrow is I want you to write an email to your boss, and I want you to tell your boss that you're taking two weeks off. I don't want you to ask. I want you to tell him you're taking two weeks off. I said, well, we got a policy. Uh, HR is going to come to me and tell me, you know, you understand PTO. I don't think you understand. Uh, and he stopped, and he, he kind of chuckled. And he says to me, who gave you your job? 
Who gave you your salary? Did you earn your salary because you're smart? Did you earn your intelligence? Did you earn that skill? Now, you've been trained a little bit. You've been mentored a little bit, I'm sure. But who gave you that mind? Who gave you that brain? Who gave you your gifts? I mean, how can you not be convicted by that? So the next morning, I took like an hour to write this very short email. And I said, well, what happens if they say no? And he says, then you tell them you're going to quit. And so uh, I did. I learned a great lesson there. I did do that, you know, and I've never taken less than two weeks since. It's been an amazing uh, change in the way I do ministry, actually. Now, friends, I'm going to say that to you. Who gave you your job? Did you earn it? Who gave you your salary? Did you earn it? What, have you, what are you pouring out before the Lord? What is one way that we respond to the grace of God? It's through radical generosity. Radical generosity. These men poured themselves out. And then David, so moved, poured his drink out. It was a drink offering that led to a thanksgiving offering. And uh, radical generosity. You got to give. You pour yourselves out. Today, we kill ourselves. You pour yourselves out. You know what it means to pour yourselves out. Just look at college students uh, three days before finals or during finals. You never see a college student get more religious than right before finals. They're like, God, God. You know, all of a sudden people, they never come to church, but they're praying. They're praying, right? You see that, right? Uh, we, we, we're, we're always killing ourselves to get into the best schools, the best jobs, to, to have the best wedding, to have the best careers, and so you feel like you've earned it. Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times uh, best-selling author, uh, he wrote a series of books that have just been lauded. All, every book, time he comes out with a book, the New York Times hails it as one of his best. He wrote a book called The Outliers. And uh, without going into the book, mainly the theme of bo- the book is this. His question is, how much of your gifts and your skills did you really earn Much of success is based on things that you never earned. This is a secular author telling us that most of our gifts, most of the things that get us successful, that bring us success and accomplishments, you didn't earn. Your intelligence, your looks, your talent, your gifts. The theme, one of the big themes here is that every blessing, look to your blessings as a gift. Look to your victories as a gift. Number two, look to your king. Look to your king with love and delight. Always results in obedience. These men were so totally devoted to their king, there was no difference between a command and a sigh. No difference. David, he just said, oh, if somebody would just do this, and his wish, their command. What does that mean? There's a big difference between religion and Christianity, religion and the gospel. Christians respond to the Lord the way these men responded to David, their king. 
a religious person says this. A religious person says, hmm, what does God want? What does God require? I need power. I need wisdom. So what can I do? You know, I also need, uh, I, wanna, I have certain other things that I want. So what can I do? Uh, what does God require? And what they do is they concentrate on the rules. And so how do you tell when somebody's religious? When they're asked to do something that goes against their desires, that goes against their real desires, their real felt needs, right? Um, when they're asked to do something apart from what satisfies what they really want, they get frustrated or they become absent. They become silent. In other words, religious people, they only fulfill the law when it fits their desires, when it's aligned to their needs. They're happy if their needs are met. They're angry if their needs are not met. Or they're silent if their needs are not met. But a Christian, he searches God's heart. A Christian looks at the commands of God, the sigh of God, the heart of God, the burden of God. A Christian looks at these things and says, these sighs, I see God's character, I see his heart, it moves a Christian. So what they do is, they, they're, they move, they're moved by God's size and they take the joy of God in. What do you glory in? What do you take joy in? What gives you joy? It's why religious people, people, you know, people who just go to church, they never live a big life. Because they, they do what God wants really to satisfy their own joy. That's what they're doing. And so a religious person, because... Um, he puts his own desires, his own honor, his own options, his own potential, his own joy before God's honor and God's joy and God's burden and God's heart. They're very, very limited. They're very, very limited, very easily dissatisfied, very, very short-sighted and narrow-minded. Because if you know God's heart and if you've heard God's sigh and it moves, moves you, you would want exactly what he would want. A Christian, he does what God wants just out of joy, just out of the sheer joy and the pleasure of knowing God. God's delight is his reward. It's not a means to an end. It's the end. In verse 15, David says, oh, if someone would just get me a drink. And so they went. That's what happened. There was no discussion. There was no meeting. There was no budgeting conversation or argument or discussion. They weren't sitting there weighing out the cost and the risks. I'm sure they knew the costs and the risks. They had to do it. They had to do it for God's glory. They had to do it for their king. But a, Christ, a Christian wants to do that for their king. It was almost on impulse. Their love for their king was so dynamic and it was so rich not so that they could get something out of their king. The king had nothing. He had nothing. At that time, David didn't have a throne. He didn't even have a home. He didn't even have water. Not from his own well. Just because they loved their king. He sighs. It was their sigh. And so they went. The relationship between a religious person and God is very mechanical. Prayers, church, community group, service, it's because they want things. The relationship between a Christian and his God is radically personal. It's dynamic. There's power. There's a joy. There's a, I have to because of my delight in God. 
the intimacy that I have with God. I'm compelled by the love of God. It's because they want more of God. That's why, uh, that's why they go to church. That's why they pray. It also lies at the center of why they do community the way uh, they're shaped in their communities, that's how you see it. A religious person, he, of course, a religious people, they want community also. A religious person delights in community as well. You know why? Because they're lonely, and they're anxious, and they're frustrated. But the community serves their side. You get that? A Christian gets involved in community group or in the church because God is community. And so the best way to understand, the best way to know him, to know his heart, to know his side, to know his burdens, is to have the many dimensions of God's image before them. That's what's so difficult about our racial tensions today, is that it's all the image of God. We have so many dimensions of the image of God represented. And to be able to embrace that, to learn the many dimensions, you learn the many dimensions of God, and it shapes you. That's why we're so different. All of our distinctives are so important in that way. You get to hear a sigh through that. You see that? God is understood best then in the context of different people. When David saw that the mighty men had broken through, there he had the assurance through their risk, through their sacrifice, that God is present. God is with him. Because they risk their lives. If you read the Bible just to get answers or just to get morals, number one, it's never going to move you. It's going to harden you. Number two, uh, you're never going to change. You're never going to be shaped by the word that way. In fact, the word of God is going to be very oppressive to you, sometimes confusing to you, a lot of times angering to you. You need to understand the heart of God the burden of God, that it's all about Jesus. Because who's Jesus? Jesus Christ is the high king. The Bible tells us he's a greater David. The Bible tells us that there is somebody who overheard your sigh. Somebody heard your sigh, longing for water, Longing for a home, longing for that place, just like David. David sighed for a home, he sighed for a rest, he sighed for peace, shalom rest. It's why he's sighing for water. And the passage points to somebody who overheard your heart, your sigh, your thirst. Somebody who got up and went to the enemy, broke through the enemy for you. Jesus broke through the lines, but not at the risk of his life. Jesus Christ broke through the lines of the enemy at the cost of his life. And so on the cross, his blood is being poured out as a sacrifice. The spear struck him and blood poured out. The crown of thorns dug into him and blood poured out. The nails in his, in his hands and his feet, blood pouring out, water pouring out. In other words, his life is being poured out just like water. It's just being poured out, spilling out into the ground. What's happening? Jesus Christ is making the ultimate sacrifice. And he looks to God and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that is? That's a sigh. The king, the high king is uttering a sigh. And yet no one answered. Everyone was silent. In fact, the only things he heard were, were jeering and mocking and insults. God had stayed silent. Jesus Christ is saying, 
You know, David's men, they honored him with a drink. They honored him with a drink, but my people, Jesus is saying, my people, they've abandoned me. And here they're mocking me and insulting me, and I thirst. He says, I am thirsty. I am longing for a home. I am longing for rest. I am longing for peace. You know why he was saying that? Because God, who is his home, God, his father, who is his rest, who is his center, who is his peace, he had forsaken him. He had abandoned him. And so he's being poured out. All the while, he's being dishonored. And you know why he does that? He does that to honor his people. He does that to honor his God. And did you know that all the while, there was rejection everywhere from his own people, the very people that he has come to save. They're dishonoring him and mocking him and insulting him. God himself turned his face from him. And yet, do you know that if you read Isaiah 53, if you read Psalm 22, Jesus Christ is praying on the cross. Jesus Christ is singing. Psalms are, psalms are songs. Jesus Christ is singing on the cross. Isaiah 53 says he went gladly and he was satisfied. Jesus' life poured out gives us a far more assurance that God is present in the midst of our sufferings than even David had. David, that was all he needed. Blown away by the sacrifice of his men. And so he had the hope, he had the strength, he was moved by the honor. We should be so much more moved in our circumstances. We should be so much more moved. David, even though he was a king, he didn't deserve it. He knew that. It humbled him, and as a result, he worshiped. And yet it gave him strength because he was reminded that God is with him. God is present through the brokenness of his life. How much more should we be reminded? Only if you see the high king doing that for you. The true hero, the true mighty, who heard your sigh, broke through our greatest enemy. At the cost of his life and thirsted on the cross for you. The true king who sighed and thirsted for you. Only when you see that, only when you look to that, if you see the sweetness and the, and the heroism of Christ, the beauty of Christ, Jesus becomes beautiful. Jesus becomes your delight when you do that. When you see the love of Jesus and the, and the love, the loyalty of this mighty man, the mightiest if you see the valor of Jesus, the courage of Jesus, and yet the humility, of Je- the humility of Jesus, that the high king would come down and break through for our sakes, God hearing our sigh, then you will look to Jesus and you will love him. You will look to him and obey. He becomes your king. To the extent that you see the high king coming down, you will look to the high king and obey and hear his sigh, and you will hear his burden, and you will hear the sighs of others. You will hear the cries of the city. Do you see that? Because you are mighty. You have skills. You have talent. You have wealth. You have assets that the rest of the people in the city do not have. Surely you can break through. Break through the oppressiveness. Break through the thirsting. 
and helped to contribute to an era of peace in the city known as the city of brotherly love. Can you, do you know that? Number three, I'm going to finish this very quickly. Number three, you got to look to your friends. I mean, this is a passage about friendship. You have to look to your, to your friends. You have to look to your friends with thanksgiving and with worship. This passage teaches us the power of deep relationships, the power of deep friends, friends who know our sigh, friend, genuine friends who hear our sighs, who know our burdens, true friends who encourage you, true friends who uplift you, true friends who refresh you, true friend, friends who soothe you, true friends who comfort you, true friends who understand your heart. These men, they knew David. They knew exactly what he needed. They understood his longing, and they acted on it. It was instinctive. And what happens? Genuine friends, they bring each other into worship together. David, upon receiving it, brought about a time of worship for all of them. So moved, so honored. You're able to look at your friends And not only be grateful because you don't deserve the best of your friends. None of us do. Because your friends know the ugliness. They know your flaws better than anyone. They know your flaws. They know your weaknesses. They know your vulnerabilities. They know your brokenness. They know your sin. It gets taken out on them, if anything. And yet they are willing to go to battle. They are willing to break through the lines for you. You should look at your friends gospel-centered friends, friends who love Jesus, and and as a result, they love you not because you're so lovable, but because they see your brokenness and they hear your sigh. And so when you need comfort, they know to give you comfort. And when you need rebuke, they will give you rebuke. That's refreshing. We need it. It changes what we sigh after, and they hear. Do you see that? They understand your longing and they act on it. And as a result, the way you respond is to be drawn into worship with them. Genuine friends, friends, they bring out of you your sigh and your deep longings, and they bring about a, a, a serious and a real, a, a radical and real hope and victory in Jesus. And that should always lead you. You know that's happening when it leads you to worship. It leads you to reorient your lives towards God, towards obedience. Do you see that? And lastly, this is all in the context of suffering. So you've got to look to your moments of darkness. You've got to look to your moments of suffering with hope. You know what that means? You know, throughout David's kingship, he's in caves. For some of us, the caves is depression. For some of us, those caves are suffering. For some of us, those caves, the darkness, it's fear. For some of us, those caves are guilt. You have to remember that God promises his presence through that brokenness, through that suffering. The question should never be, where is God in my suffering? It's, why don't I see God in my suffering? And so what we should be doing is looking to our friends, looking to our friends so that we'd be drawn into worship, looking to our king so that we should be drawn in obedience and courage and faith looking at our blessings as a victory. These are uh, the ways that God shaped David 
to be a good king. That's how he became a good king. He wasn't born a good king. He was shaped into it. He was molded into it. It's how he became a good ruler. It's how he became a wise person. It's how he lived a big life. And it's how you will grow in wisdom. It's how you will grow in humility. It's how you will become a wise person. And it's how you will take big risks in your life to live a big life. It's how God exalted his own son, Jesus Christ, through his death. And if he will will bring about healing and salvation and redemption through the story of Jesus Christ, through the narrow narrative of Jesus' suffering, how will he do? How will he bring about redemption and healing and wisdom through the brokenness in your life? In chapter 15, the Spirit of God floods into David's life. David's anointed, and it says, from that day on, the Spirit of God rushed into his life. Every moment, every hour, it's the Spirit of God in in David's life. It's not because David has had courage. The Spirit of God was rushing into his life, shaping him, giving him courage. And that's present for you. Do you know that when we say that the Holy Spirit dwells in our lives, that power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead resides in you. Don't say I can't defeat, I can't overcome these things in my life. That I can't persevere through these things in my life. Do you see that? God is shaping you to be humbler. You know, when you suffer a lot, you become more compassionate. It's a reality. When you suffer a lot, whatever is hard in there starts to break. And people who suffer, you start to turn an eye towards them. You relate with them. You understand them. And the way you speak to them becomes very different than if you never suffered in that area. And so God is making you more like Jesus. Merciful, compassionate, gracious, kind, good, wise. Look to Jesus Christ in every way. Let the Spirit of God flood every aspect of your life. Let the gospel come in. Take it in. Digest it. Consume it. Let it refresh you. Comfort you so that you vie away from that which is religious in your life and delight in the Father because of what he has done for you. The high king has come down for you and broke through the enemy lines for you. Will you look to him? Let that soothe you and comfort you. Let it humble you because you never deserved it. Let it empower you and give you courage because you will never lose it. And let that shape you then and mold you in between those bookends Between humility and confidence, let it shape you to turn an eye towards, an ear towards God's size and his heart and his burden so you will look to him in love. That's what it means to grow in Christ. Will you do that? Will you let the gospel shape your life and shape your heart and shape your desires? Let's pray together.